Hello, I am Kevin Smith, and you have found the Terminator Training Show, your one-stop shop for no BS training, nutrition, and health information. For more, please go to TerminatorTraining.com. Thank you for tuning in, and enjoy the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Terminator Training Show. I'm Kevin Smith. Today is going to be a Q&A episode from this week's Instagram Q&As. If you want your question answered on the show and potentially on Instagram, go ahead and give me a follow at Terminator underscore training. Once a week, I do a Q&A where I answer these questions on my Instagram and more in depth. If it's a good question, more in depth on here. Last few episodes, I've been actually last, I would say last one or two episodes, I've been going back through the questions and highlighting the ones that are the best instead of just going in order, kind of like I used to, because I've kind of realized that some of the questions are just not really all that worth going more in depth in. And since I get quite a few questions now, I figured it was better suited for me and my listeners to go back through and find the good ones. And so that's what I've done. So I have the questions highlighted, going to try to get to all of them. We will see what happens, but some of them are kind of quick answers and we'll go from there. But first question is how do guys in the Q course go on PEDs and pass a poly with drug related questions? Okay. So some serious acronyms here, but it's an important answer. So Q course, special forces qualification course, PEDs, performance enhancing drugs. Probably most of you guys know that. And a poly is a polygraph test, like what they give to people who are, you know, charged with a murder or a lot of high level agencies, three letter agencies use polygraph tests as part of their interview process. We'll start with that. The Q course does not have a poly. There's no poly for SF. So with that out of the way, PEDs, I've been getting a lot of questions about this. I made a post about it the other day, but I would not worry about PEDs. If if you're going to use them, it's just going to add a bunch of stress and worry and unknown and trying to sneak things around while you go through selection of the Q course, et cetera. So you're much better off just not using them. If you want to, you know, dabble in that area later on when you are deployed or when you're in group, or if you need to go on TRT because you just have low testosterone because the job is not very favorable for hormones, that's one thing. Doctor prescribed, etc. But for the Q course, for selection, for all that, it's totally unnecessary. It can and has been and will continue to be done naturally. You don't have to be a superhuman. You just have to be very fit, of course, more fit than the average person, but none of that requires performance enhancing drugs. And also most people don't know how to use performance enhancing drugs, especially for endurance goals and purposes properly. And what they get is potentially putting themselves at risk, especially if you're using actual effective endurance drugs like EPO and stuff like that, you're actually putting yourself at a massive risk. And also you're just not going to be able to sneak it into selection. You're not going to be able to use that selection. Yeah. You can use that stuff in the Q course, but it just doesn't matter. And then a lot of guys in the Q course will go on. They'll want to get like super jacked. This was when I went through, this was more prominent during language. Guys would just go on a bunch of stuff and they'd get super jacked. And then guess what? They would really, really struggle with any sort of PT assessment, any sort of running, rucking, etc. And it was very obvious and apparent. They didn't have testing back then. Typically these guys somehow finagled their way through the Q course, but it's just totally not worth it. And it can be done naturally. So I wouldn't worry about it at all. And that way 
this question doesn't even become a thing. And I got a few other PED questions as well. And that answer kind of holds true for all of them. And I figured I would just answer one and just cover it right off the bat and get it over with. So don't worry about it. Go naturally. You're going to be fine. Eat well, sleep well, train well, hydrate well, and manage your stress well. And it is totally doable naturally. Next question, ballpark. How long would you need to be spending in SF or the 75th Ranger Regiment before trying out for CAG? Uh, zero seconds. You don't have to be a former SF or Ranger Regiment individual in order to apply and go to Delta Selection. They don't require it. A lot of guys that end up being successful at selection and further into OTC and become operators are from SF or the Ranger Regiment, but that doesn't mean it's required. If you are eligible, you will start getting emails for them from them. I think you have to be between E4 and E8 and a certain amount of time in service, a certain GT score, then you have to go do their brief and you have to do a PT test and you have to do an IQ test and then they have to, and you have to do your application and they're being very, very selective from what I've been told with applications right now. But yeah, doesn't matter. You don't have to do any time. Yeah, would it, would it help probably to have that experience? Like I said, the majority of guys who are successful have experience in higher level units like the Ranger Regiment and SF, but it's not required. Next question. Balancing alcohol and training while on an ODA to avoid potential so social ostracization. That's a tongue twister. Yeah, so decent question, but at the same time, I'm going to give you my answer kind of based on my story and the story of some other guys. So when I first got into SF, when I first got to group and throughout the Q course, et cetera, I was a big drinker, party guy, like to go out on weekends, drink way more than a little bit. I typically drank even on weeknights, just small amounts on weeknights, but I was a regular drinker and realized towards my late twenties, early thirties that it wasn't serving me much anymore. So I drastically cut back. I didn't fully quit drinking. I haven't had a drink since November 11th ish of 2022. So what's that about 15, 16 months or so. And I feel better than ever, but either way I quit drinking when I was still in group and not a single person batted an eye. Like guys would like ask, you know, what's going on? Why, why am I not drinking with them? And I would just give them the answer and say, I don't want to feel crappy tomorrow. And I feel way better and I sleep way better and I perform way better. My mental health is way better when I'm not drinking. So therefore I don't want to drink. The important thing is not to try and drag other people into your new habit. Like just if someone asks, explain why you're not doing it, but then don't try and talk down to them. Like they are a bad person because they're still doing it. If they ask like, Hey, what do you think? Like, is it worth doing? Then yeah, you can absolutely explain to them like some of the benefits of not drinking and how much better you feel and how much better your life is. However, the guys that get ostracized, quote unquote, to use your words, or the guys who are really annoying are the ones that try and push their agenda on other people. And that's the same with like a lot of things, diet, stuff like that. If you've ever had like a vegan try and convince you to go vegan, you know what I'm talking about. It's just stop talking. So that is the main thing. If alcohol is not serving you, or if it doesn't serve you and you know that and you don't drink now, you don't have to start drinking in order to fit in. That it's it, Alcohol is this kind of weird thing where if you're not drinking, you're abnormal. If you are drinking, if you are 
knowingly putting a poisonous substance in your body that is going to make you feel temporarily good. And then it's going to make you feel terrible and probably ruin your day tomorrow. And maybe even the next day, depending on how old you are and how much you drink, then you are considered completely normal and it's a accepted activity. So it's, it's starting, I believe, like from what I've seen, it's starting to change a little bit. Like more people are starting to catch on to the fact that there's no positive benefits of alcohol whatsoever, health benefits, mental health benefits, performance benefits, et cetera. Everything about alcohol is not good. So I think more people are starting to catch on with that, but still like SF special operations in general is notoriously a bunch of big drinkers. So just expect that. But at the same time, you're not like going to be ostracized if you don't drink and just stick to your guns. Don't feel pressured into doing anything. If you have enough self-esteem and self-confidence to just do you, then what you should then you're going to be good to go. Next question, lifting advice for the long-limbed folks, femurs and arms. Yep. So I'm in this boat as well. Basically, if you have really long femurs, really long arms, any sort of somewhat uncommon anthropometry, anthropometry is just basically your structure, your anatomical structure, your, the length of your limbs, your leverages, etc. then certain movements are not going to benefit you as well as certain other movements. I also made a post about this kind of recently, but I'll kind of talk about it here. So we'll talk about the femurs. If you have really long femurs, you'll, you'll know this by when you do a squat, if you do like a high bar squat, you're going to be very, very bent over compared to if you watch like a Chinese weightlifter do a squat, they're going to be very upright. And the squat's going to be a very, very good movement for their quads. Not that they're trying to build their quads. They're trying to improve their Olympic lifts. So they do squats for it, but that's just one example. Those guys are just, they're so good at weightlifting because obviously they are strong. They have great training. They have incredible genetics for it, but also part of that genetic makeup is that they have the perfect body proportions for it. So if you have really long femurs, you're going to be more bent over in your squat. It's going to be more of a hinge dominant squat, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. There are plenty of long femur squatters that can squat a lot of weight. Typically low bar is going to be a more favorable position for you to squat more weight, but a low bar squat is not going to build a lot of quad mass. If you're using squats to build quad mass, if you're using it for strength, totally fine. It can work your glutes, your lower back, stuff like that. Cause it's just going to be more bent over and it's not unsafe if you do it right. And if you have the proper mechanics, but if you're using squats to build your quads, you definitely want to consider making some adjustments, those adjustments. So if you do love barbell squatting, which you don't have to barbell squat unless you do it for sport. But if you're looking to build your quads, for example, and you have long femurs, it's going to be harder for you to build your quads. Just typically genetically, you're going to have a more difficult time doing it. But if you have a barbell, for example, you can do a high bar squat and you can also elevate your heels that will allow you to drive your knees further out over your toes. And it'll help you keep a little bit more upright and it'll allow you to go a little bit deeper and place a bigger loaded stretch on your quads. You'll definitely have to drop the weight from what you typically squat for this, but it's going to be more favorable for quad growth. You can also do front squats. You can do front squats in the same configuration with your heels elevated if you like, or you can wear Olympic lifting shoes. If you want to elevate your heels, just kind of a tangent, but if you want to elevate your heels, I see a lot of people stepping on like bumper plates, like 25 pound bumper plates. And when you do that, you have basically a couple little spots of your feet that are anchored to something and the rest of your feet are just kind of floating in the air. So that would not be my top choice for elevating my heels. I would either go and buy some squat wedges or purchase a pair of Olympic lifting shoes. That way your feet are 
completely based onto the ground and not just kind of free floating. But anyway, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to select other movements that involve machines, the hack squat, the pendulum squat, the leg press, depending on how nice or shitty your leg press machine is. If you have a nice leg press machine that allows for really good range of motion, allows you to lean way back in the seat and allows you to put your feet at the very bottom of the pad and get your knees way out over your toes. I have access to, I'm lucky enough to have access to the Arsenal leg press, which is very, very nice. It's, it's a similar, I think it's like the exact same replica of the Rogue leg press. It's basically got a slanted foot pad and the bottom slants forward. So it elevates your heels a little bit more. When I use it, I also wear Olympic lifting shoes because it allows me to get even deeper and my knees even further out over my toes. But that's a really nice machine. Not all leg presses are created equal. Not all hack squats, pendulum squats are created equal. Some of them are great. Some of them are not so great. But typically for this person, I recommend if you're doing any sort of squat movement, whether it's a machine, barbell, safety bar, a later questions about safety bar, to use some sort of heel elevation whether it's Olympic lifting shoes. They also make wedges that you can put in your shoes and further elevate your heels. But that is going to be the main consideration for building your quads. Hinge lifts like deadlifts, uh, deadlift variations, hinge variations are not as much of a concern for someone with long femurs. It's more the squat thing, getting your knees out over your toes and keeping your back safe by not having to like bend way over which again can be safe, but it can also be stressful in the back. And it's totally not worth it if you're just trying to build your quads to just do a bunch of low bar squats. Believe me, when I first started lifting seriously and I got my squat really, really strong, my legs were super duper skinny and I was squatting like in the mid 400s pretty easily, but it was a low bar. And I was wondering why my, he my quads weren't growing. And it's because my squat was basically like a hinge because I have really long femurs. In regards to long arms, kind of similar. Some movements are just going to be harder for you. If you have really long arms, your bench press is probably not going to be as great as a lot of other people. And also your bench press may not be the best exercise for your chest because of it's such a long range of motion, especially if you're like relatively thin, like your torso is relatively thin, which typically people with longer limbs are just thinner builds. Not always, but just a usual thing. You're going to have a big range of motion for the bench press and it's going to involve a lot of tricep strength. It might involve a decent amount of front delts. So maybe the barbell bench is not the best movement for you. You can definitely still do it if you enjoy it and if it doesn't bother you, but to actually grow your chest, you probably want to consider using dumbbells, using push-up variations, decline push-up or deficit push-up variations, dips, machine presses, flies, etc. cetera. Uh, those will probably all hit your chest a little bit better. And yeah, the movements are still, the range of motion is still going to be pretty long, but those movements usually allow you to set them up so that you can connect better to your chest, just depending on what kind of equipment you have. And then like pulling exercises, some guys with longer arms are pretty good at pull-ups. Some guys with longer arms really, really struggle with pull-ups. It really just depends on a few things, but typically, obviously your range of motion is going to be longer if you have longer arms for pull-ups. So just know that, that you're probably going to have to really work if you want to do like a really high rep high amount of reps of pull-ups, you're going to have to really work at it. You're going to have to get really strong. You're going to have to do them very consistently. And in my observation, you're not going to see this in science or studies or anything like that. But in my observation, typically people with longer limbs are a little bit more injury prone, like overuse style injuries. What For whatever reason, usually these people have smaller joints than someone who's got like more 
evenly distributed body pr- proportions. They've got like big, thick joints. They usually build muscle pretty easily. Think of like your classic ectomorph, which is basically how I'm built. Just really doesn't have an easy time putting on muscle or any mass whatsoever. Some ectomorphs are kind of skinny fat. They put on fat kind of easily and they really struggle putting on muscle, which is unfortunate. But yeah, you just have to go into your movements. I recently made a post that kind of covered what I just talked about. In the caption, I had three questions that you can ask yourself going into a movement. The three questions are, can I feel it in the target muscle? Do I feel joint pain from it? If you don't feel it in the target muscle and you feel joint pain from it, it's not a good movement. That's question number one and question number two will immediately disqualify a movement from your arsenal. And then question three, does it fatigue the hell out of me for several days? And that one is just kind of, it depends on what your goals are. If you find a movement that maybe feel a little bit in your joints, that's just part of lifting, but it really smashes like your target muscle and it doesn't fatigue the hell out of you like systemically for several days afterwards, then that's not a movement that you have to just get rid of. You definitely can still do that. Like I said, lifting, can cause a little bit of joint discomfort. That's just part of it. If it just keeps getting worse, that's one thing. Or if it's really bad, and like I said, you don't feel it in your target muscle and it fatigues the hell out of you. Like for example, the deadlift. A lot of people still just crank away at the deadlift incessantly because they know it's a good movement, but all they feel is their lower back like pain and it fatigues them for several days and the deadlift's not really a big hypertrophy movement anyway. Yes, you gain muscle from the deadlift, but it's works a lot of different muscles, which by definition makes it less of a hypertrophy movement. But yeah, it's just selecting your exercises appropriately and properly, putting some thought into it and really focusing on form, technique, et cetera. Not using your long limbs as an excuse, but just using them as a way to be more cerebral as you approach your training and put more thought into it. And don't just do exercises that your buddy does or that you read in a article online that are the best exercises because everyone's got different exercises that are the best for them. Next question, you're testing two and five mile run. Fair to say zone five for the majority of the run is normal depending on RPE. Yeah, so I don't know what you mean depending on RPE, so we'll leave that part out. But zone five, by definition, a loose definition of zone five is a pace that you can hold for three to five minutes. Really, really fit elite endurance athletes could probably hold zone five for seven to 10 minutes at the most, but zone five is 90 plus percent of your maximum heart rate. Many people, less trained people cannot even get into zone five. Not at all. They don't, they don't have the pain tolerance required to get into zone five. So if you're hitting zone five on a two mile or a five mile, and it's before you hit like the last half mile on either one, you are definitely going way too hard. Most of a two mile should be in zone four ish. You can hold zone four if you're fit enough for a longer period of time. And then the end, you can crank it up to zone five, but you're not really paying attention to like heart rate at that point. You're just kind of like holding on for dear life. And then a a five mile, you, depending on how fit you are, depending on how long you can maintain zone four, depending on your pre run training and the amount of tempo slash threshold slash VO2 max work that you've done, you might be able to hold zone four for the majority of it. You might even have to start in zone three and then kind of graduate to zone four and then finish strong in zone five. But no, you're not going to be holding zone five the entire time. If you're doing a really long race, like half marathon, marathon plus, you're probably going to be in zone three for most of it. And this this type of population, some people who run half marathons and marathons would be 
great candidates to run a decent amount of zone three, because that's going to be your pace for at least a good portion of a marathon and a decent portion of a half marathon, just because you can't hold zone four for a super long period of time. It's just not doable. Um, if you're really fit, you probably hold zone four for an hour or so. If you're less fit, you're going to be less than that. So just consider that, but you won't, you should not be in zone five early on in either of these. Next question. What's the best way to train for the two mile and the five mile, both at the same time? Good question. If you are doing this for army running improvement or military running improvement, which most likely you are, you don't need to be elite at either of these things. If you had to be elite at the two mile and the five mile, this answer would have a lot more nuance. But since you are just trying to get a solid five mile and a two mile in the army, for example, like a 33, 32 minute five mile or a 12, 12, 32 mile, those are pretty solid outings for those two distances. You should focus mostly on getting really good at the five mile. You can definitely do some intervals that are like between the two and the five mile duration and distance, but your main focus should be get really good at the five mile. And then when it's time to run two fifths of that, you're going to have a pretty solid performance. So getting good at a five mile run involves a decent amount of volume, probably for most people, depending on how naturally good you are at running or how poor you are at running, you probably need somewhere between 20 and 30 miles per week, maybe even a little bit more than that to get a solid, respectable five mile time. You probably need to spend a lot of time building a base. So if you have not listened to episode 95 on base building, I would definitely listen to that and adhere to that before you start doing the things I'm about to talk about. So assuming you have a solid base, that's when you can start doing some intervals for your interval session. I would do two speed sessions per week. You can probably get away with three as you get closer to doing it, but you definitely have to make a lot of manipulations in your other training, especially lower lower body training, and also probably reduce your overall mileage if you're doing three speed sessions per week. So for example, say on Monday, we'll do two We'll do t- this example. We'll have two speed sessions per week. So Monday, I like to do intervals and like VO2 max stuff, really intense stuff on Monday, assuming you had a rest day on Sunday, just because those sessions are very mentally demanding and physically demanding. So you want to go into an interval session fresh. Normally, a lot of people will do intervals at the end of the week after a full week of training. And I'm not a huge fan of that. If you take another rest day that isn't Sunday, that's totally fine. You can do intervals on the day after that. It doesn't necessarily have to occur right after a rest day, but it should occur when you are not fatigued. Like you shouldn't have hit a big lower body session the the day before, or you shouldn't have hit like a super long run or a tempo run or a fartlek run or anything like that the day before intervals. But I would consider doing intervals in a total volume of two and a half to maybe three and a half miles total. So that could be 10 400s. That could be four 800s and what, four 400s, et cetera. Lots of different options, but for a two mile only, you can keep intervals pretty short. 200 to 400 meter intervals are usually pretty good, maybe 600. For a five mile, you definitely want to consider doing some longer intervals or repeats, kind of the same thing. So 600, 800, 1Ks, even up to a mile are all considerations to improve your five mile. And those will obviously still improve your two mile as well. And you also want to make sure you're running your intervals at an appropriate pace and not doing what most people do, which is going and running their first interval all out, their second interval all out, third interval all out, 
But by the time they get to the end, because they've run every single one all out, their last interval is 45 seconds slower than their first one, say for like a 1K repeats or something like that. If your last repeat, the word repeat means that you should be able to repeat your previous performance. If your last one is 45 seconds slower than your first one, you're not getting the adaptation that you need. The adaptation you're looking for is to get really good at running just below your goal pace, just faster than your goal pace. So say your goal pace for a five mile for easy math is seven minutes per mile or a 35 minute five mile. If you're running your repeats at a 545 mile, you're not getting the adaptations of running at a realistic goal pace for you. So you should be running your repeats somewhere in the 645 to 655 mile range. And that should slowly get faster over week to week to week or bi-weekly, or you can add volume or you can manipulate the rest periods, or you can manipulate what you do during the rest periods, whether you're walking or whether you're actually jogging part of the rest period. Or for some people, if you're very advanced, you can jog the entirety of the rest period and go into your next interval. But don't make that mistake of always, and that's not always the pace that you have to hit. There's so many different ways to pace intervals. You can do like fastest repeatable pace, which you have to be advanced in order to do that. You have to know what pace that you can actually repeat. That one is a definitely more intense, hard, fatiguing way to run intervals. But definitely consider like when you're going into running intervals, I would Google like, what should I run my paces at? You can usually enter your time and your goal and they will tell you a pace range for your intervals so that you're not just going all out and you're smoked by the end and you got tons and tons of fatigue. You feel really frustrated and you didn't really make any positive progress. So that's important for intervals later in the week, maybe Thursday, second speed session, you can do a tempo run. You can do a fartlek run. I would just kind of choose one of those and not do both, but you can also do fartlek interval or uh, tempo intervals, which is a little bit like a fartlek run, but it's just longer, fast portions. So for example, maybe you're going to do two 12 minute tempo portions at this. This should be around your goal pace, maybe a little bit slower than your goal pace to start out 10 to 15 seconds per mile slower. So you, with that same example, you'd run your first tempo at 710 to 715, and then you'd slowly get a little bit faster over time. You can also run tempos. If you're doing this for like short periods of time, you can run tempos at around your goal pace, or if you're doing significantly shorter tempos than your actual like five miles going to be. So say you're training for a five mile, your first tempo run is like 12 minutes. You can definitely do that faster than your five mile pace slightly. I wouldn't go crazy fast, but Tempo runs, a lot of people mess up too. They kind of turn, turn them into time trials and they're completely smoked by the end. And they're again, not getting that adaptation. So what I have my clients do for their tempo work is to ask themselves the question, could I have run that pace if I had to for another 10 minutes or even better, but less realistic, just knowing my audience and knowing the type of personalities that my clients have even better would be, could I run that pace for double the duration? So you say you had a 20 minute tempo run. Could I have run that pace? If I absolutely had to, it would have been really difficult gun to my head. Could I have maintained that pace for 40 minutes or at least 30 minutes? If you could not have run that pace for another one minute or two minutes, your tempo work is way too fast. So you got to slow down, but yeah, I would do that. And I would also probably do a long run every week 
And it depends also if you're rucking as well, then you have to kind of factor that in. But we're just talking strictly running here. You obviously want to lift, but you want to really watch how much lower body lifting you're doing, especially the volume. You can definitely lift intensely for the lower body, but a lot of lower body volume combined with a lot of speed work and running volume is not a great recipe for success. So somewhere in the 20 to 30 mile week range, maybe more if you can handle it at least two speed sessions per week, maybe three. I wouldn't do three speed sessions indefinitely. That might be like every other week or every three weeks you do three speed sessions. And I would also make sure that every so often you're taking a week off of speed work and probably one or two more long runs. During the long runs, you can go up into like zone three a little bit if you want, if you're advanced and you know you're doing and you're recovering well, but that's a pretty good formula to improve your five mile, which thereby will improve your two mile as well. Next question, advice on fueling before cardio, specifically how long before? Yeah, so it really just depends on what you're doing for cardio, especially, and it kind of depends on your on the person and your goals. If your goal is maximum performance for cardio, you definitely want to be way more meticulous about your peri-workout, we'll call it peri-workout around your workout fueling. If you're just doing cardio for health and or fat loss, which I don't really recommend doing cardio for fat loss, but if you're doing it for health, doesn't matter as much. If you're doing an easy cardio session, 30, 45 minute run, doesn't matter as much. For runs, I'll say we'll do some criteria for which runs I would really, or which type of cardio, we'll just use running as an example, that I would really consider fueling a lot more meticulously. So anything that lasts over 75 to 90 minutes, you definitely want to make sure that you're very well fueled. You also want to make sure that you have like your overall calorie and carbohydrate intake is sufficient and you want to consider intra workout fueling as well. If you're doing a shorter session, but you are going really hard. So a tempo work, tempo work session or a interval session, repeat session, whatever it may be. If you're doing a race, something like that, you also really, really want to consider your fueling. If you're doing a cardio session after a lift, you also definitely want to consider your pre and intra workout fueling. And that's about it. So long session, hard session, or post-lift session are the main things. And if you're doing it for performance primarily, again, you want to make sure that your overall calorie intake, your carb intake, especially is sufficient. You want your glycogen stores topped off. You top your glycogen stores off by eating enough carbohydrates, which is going to be different for everybody. But if you go into a workout and you have less than optimal glycogen stores, you're probably going to really struggle especially towards the end, or especially when you go into harder portions like glycolytic training. Glycolytic literally means it's breaking down the glycogen that is stored in your muscles. So your overall intake is probably the most important, but for this situation, your peri-workout fueling is also important. If you're going to eat a smaller meal, I would consider doing it about 90 minutes before, maybe two hours. Something that has, depending on the person, again, 50 to 100 grams of carbohydrates in it. And these should be very easy digesting carbohydrates. Your pre-run or pre-workout meal is one of few meals where you really want to avoid high fiber and high fat. Avoid those two Fs. That's not me saying to avoid high fiber and fat all the time. Just primarily your pre-workout meal, during your workout, and immediately after. After is not as important, but still for optimal workout refueling you want to avoid them after as well. So another thing you want to consider, the, the carbs should be fast digesting. They should not be 
like I said, high fiber. So oatmeal wouldn't be great. High fiber, like tons of fruit would not be great for this particular meal. A little bit of fruit, low fiber fruit, like a banana or something like that, totally fine. But you want it be to be very fast digesting. So something rice-based, whether it's actual white rice, rice krispies, rice cakes, you'd have to eat a lot of rice cakes to get enough carbs, but still a decent option. Any sort of rice-based hot cereal, uh, rice and grinds is a great option. Something like that before your workout. You can even do more processed stuff. Bagel, something like that would be totally fine. If you're going to do bread, I would do sourdough bread, way better than wheat bread for this particular situation. And usually just in general for digestion, that's what you want to consider for carbs. You also want to consider some protein. It could be a whey shake. I would say like 30 to 40 grams of protein, whey shake or egg whites, maybe one egg with the rest egg whites or really low fat yogurt, or those are probably the best options. Really lean meat would be fine as well. If you're going to eat a bigger meal, you want to push that to like three to four hours prior. And that can have 150 plus grams of carbs in it. That can have like some fat and fiber in it. You still don't want a ton of fat and fiber, but you can have some and uh, plenty of protein, 40, 50, 60 grams of protein. That's again, three to four hours prior. If you are, for example, doing this first thing in the morning and you don't want to eat a whole meal of food, as Frank Ricard would say in old school, then I would consider drinking carbohydrates. And for this situation, I would consider maybe some whey and some fast digesting liquid carbs. I prefer Vitargo. It's a very fast digesting carbohydrate source and you can mix it. What I do is I mix that with I have lemon-lime Vitargo, lemon-lime electrolyte mix, which is I use Relight from Redmond and whey protein. And I just mix it all up into a water bottle. You got to shake it like really intensely because the Vitargo doesn't mix very well. So you really got to shake it. And I sip on that. It just tastes like a lemon-lime creamsicle and it's delicious. So I usually sip on that as I go into my training sessions. I use it for lifting too, which we won't get into whether you should do that or not. Um, that's kind of a topic for a different day, but I sip on that as I go into my workout throughout my workout. You can also use that Vitargo intra workout. If you're going longer, you want to consider a mix between liquid carbohydrates and also solid carbohydrates in the form of like goo packets or chews or something like that. You also of course want to consider hydration, water and electrolytes, especially sodium. A lot of these workout drinks have super high potassium, which is great. Potassium is fine, but it is not a good intra slash peri workout electrolyte to focus on. You lose way more salt than any other electrolyte in your sweat. So you want to focus on mostly salt, but that should get you into your workout. And again, if your workout's 75, 90 plus minutes, you want to consider fueling somewhere in the range of 60 to 80 grams of carbohydrates per hour, depending on your size. Maybe if you're smaller, like female down in the 40 to 50 range. Basically, you want to find carbohydrates that you digest well, that don't bother your gut, and the highest amount of carbohydrates you can consume per hour without GI distress. GI distress can come in many forms, but you don't want that. And you get that by practicing and using different things and seeing what works well for you. And that kind of goes with all of your pre-training nutrition especially if you are about to do a race or something that you want to perform really well in, you're getting timed on something. A lot of people, for whatever reason, when they start carb loading, they add a bunch of carbs that they are foods that they just don't eat regularly. And when you introduce new variables like that, it is usually a recipe for GI distress. I don't understand it. 
you should eat the same carbs that you normally do, just more of them. And that is a huge thing. So avoid fat, avoid fiber, and also avoid foods that you don't eat frequently. And that goes pre-workout, post-workout. If you're doing a longer event and you're carb loading for a couple days, that includes that time as well. You want to try and make it your own meals and make sure you're eating meals that you prepared so you know what you're putting in your body and should be good to go. So a long answer, but hopefully that gives you guys a good solid blueprint for considering how to fuel your training. Next question, knee health at jump school, proactive measures and jump day technique for happy ankles and knees. Yeah. So honestly, I get questions like this a lot, but if you are going to hurt your knees, no amount of like knee strengthening, ankle strengthening work is going to make it so that your knees don't, or your legs don't get hurt on a, on a static line parachute jump. There's so much with a static line jump that we are not in control of, which is one of the many reasons why I hate them. Obviously you got to go to jump school if you want to go SF. So it's part of the process, but really focus on doing a proper PLF parachute landing fall. You're going to learn that you're going to practice it over and over and over again until you're blue in the face before you actually jump. So that should be your main focus is to PLF properly for whatever reason, especially on guys like first, second, third jumps when they're not used to it yet, they forget all the stuff that they just learned on PLFing and they try and land it in a weird way. Like they try and land it like they're jumping off something or whatever. That's not going to go well for you. Sometimes there's just, you're bound to get hurt on a jump and there's no, nothing that you can do about it. But usually the reason guys get hurt is of course, if the jump is like, you know, well run and you get dropped in the right spot and the wind is not too high and they jump, throw you out anyway, which has happened to me before. And it's not fun. If you're going to get hurt, you, there's really no avoiding it. If you're going to jump and you do a proper PLF, it's not going to be comfortable. Like it's not going to be an enjoyable landing typically, especially depending on who you are. Smaller people, lighter people don't typically land as hard. If you're bigger and thicker, typically you come in like a ton of bricks and that's just the way it is. But so long as you are solidly fit, you strength train, you do your lower body movements and you are not like injured going in. And finally, you don't try and do some high speed landing that is not a PLF, you're going to be good to go. So I wouldn't worry too much about like hacks or tricks or anything like that. Just focus on getting a really good PLF. Next question. Can someone scared of heights still become a ranger or special forces? What are some ways to train it? Yes, I am exhibit A of that. There are plenty of dudes in soft that are scared of heights and I am one of them. I am not a fan of especially being like intermediate heights where the ground is kind of imminent. And especially if I only have two points of contact, like if I'm walking across something that's like 40 feet up in the air, I absolutely hate that. I am not a fan of that at all. Like the, the high walk in ranger school where you walk across the lake and you have to go up on the beam and like on this little box that you have to walk up and over hated that. And even if I fell, I would have fallen into the water. So it wouldn't have been that bad. It probably would have hurt, but it wouldn't have been that bad. It would have been super embarrassing. I don't think many people fall from that, but I was not a fan of that. And there are many parts of the obstacle course, especially in OTC that are very unfavorable for people who are scared of heights. So I'm not a fan of that. The more often you expose yourself to it, the less you're going to be afraid of it. That being said, heights is kind of a tough one. Typically, if you were scared of like spiders or elevators or something like that, you just slowly expose yourself a little bit more to it. 
and you get more comfortable around them. Heights, you can do that, but at the same time, make sure you're being reasonable with it. Like don't purposely like go walk across the edge of a cliff or put yourself in danger. That would be really, really dumb, but you know, you can start watching videos of people climbing. You can start watching videos of parachute free falls, stuff like that. That'll get you at least like you'll be able to see it. Like some people are so scared of heights that when they watch other people high up, they are uncomfortable. Like when I personally, when I watch movies that have like really high scenes, like on the top of a skyscraper, guys fighting or someone climbing without any equipment, I personally feel uncomfortable. So I'm very scared of heights. For whatever reason, I'm a lot less scared with a parachute on my back and 15,000 feet above the ground, mostly because the ground is not as imminent and also because I know I have something that I'm gonna pull and that's gonna save my life. So for whatever reason, I'm less scared there. That being said, some guys are crazy, crazy scared when they're up in a plane. You're gonna be scared your first jump anyway, whether it's static line or free fall. I mean, I had plenty of static line jumps before my first free fall jump and I was still super scared. And then going back to static line, static line jumping is way scarier than free fall jumping, at least in my opinion, but in most people's opinion. Once you go to free fall school, if you go to a free fall team, you're good to go, which you'd have to get pretty lucky to go straight to a free fall team, but it does happen. That's what I did. Once you start doing free fall jumps, you just realize how, how much more you have control and how many variables that you can actually affect by your decisions and your actions, as opposed to static line jumps, kind of like hoping for the best. Someone else packed your chute. You don't really have a lot of time. The chute's supposed to open on its own. You have no control of whether it opens or not. You just have to decide whether or not to pull your reserve. So it's terrifying, but either way it can be done. You just need to expose yourself slowly to heights. You also need to just focus on finding some way to calm yourself down and get yourself more into a parasympathetic state instead of a sympathetic fight or flight state, which will cause you to shake or it'll cause you to your hands to sweat, your feet to sweat. It'll cause you to be visibly terrified. And you don't want to be visibly terrified, especially when you're in selection on the obstacle course. There's a couple of events that are higher up. And if you're very visibly scared, then that's going to show. You're probably not going to fail, but they're probably going to make fun of you or say something to you or something like that. So you want to be able to put your mind in a place and get your physiology into a place where you can still function when you're high up, even though you're not comfortable. And that just takes practice and finding some sort of way, stress reliever, whether it's breath work, meditation, whatever it may be, of getting yourself into that calm parasympathetic state and just going and getting it done. Next question, can having creatine withdrawals happen at SFAS? Is heat stroke or weakness a risk? Okay, so creatine withdrawals are not really a thing. They kind of are. Like once creatine is out of your system, which I'll get into in a second, you might feel a little bit weaker than you did before, but it's not gonna be all that significant. Creatine, a lot of people give creatine way too much credit for being this like miraculous thing that is like really, really going to improve your performance, like some sort of PED. If that were the case, then creatine would not be legal in sports. And it is. So although creatine is beneficial to take, and if you take it like great, keep taking it. If not, then I would consider taking it basically regardless of what your goal is. It's not that significant. It's not going to cause any sort of physical or psychological withdrawal symptoms from it, like caffeine or like a drug or like alcohol or something like that. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Add to that. Also, if you stop taking creatine, like the day before you go to selection, 
it's going to take, it won't be fully out of your system until after you finish. It takes three to five weeks, I believe, to fully get out of your system. Creatine works over time as that's why you have to take it consistently. It's not this acute benefit that you get. So you take creatine daily and it slowly builds up in your muscles and it saturates in your muscles. It takes a few weeks to do that. And on the back end, when you stop taking it, it takes a few weeks to get out of your system. So if anything, you might feel a little bit weak after it's out of your system, but you're going to feel weak anyway, because you're just going to have finished a three week selection process. Hopefully if you go all the way through. So do not worry about creatine withdrawals. One thing I definitely would recommend before you go is to consider tapering or cutting out completely caffeine. Because if you're used to taking caffeine frequently and you take it every day or whatever, or especially if you drink a lot of it or consume a lot of caffeine every day, you're going to have access to little to no caffeine at selection. So if you are going through caffeine withdrawals on the first few days of selection, that's not a good thing because the first few days of selection, that's when you have to perform really well at your rucks, at your runs, calisthenics, etc. So if you just feel terrible from caffeine withdrawals, you're gonna, your performance is going to take a hit. So caffeine is a performance enhancer, especially when used strategically and when used in moderation and when used at the certain specific times that, that require it, not as much of a performance enhancer when you use it all the time. But when you're withdrawing from caffeine and everyone's a little different on how they react to caffeine withdrawals, for me, I just get really, really bad headaches and I just don't feel happy or good. But that is one thing that I would really consider tapering before you go, like tapering down to nothing, at least like a week prior to going. And you're just going to be much better off. Additionally, you do get a little bit of caffeine in some of the MREs. So if you are resensitized to caffeine, which I believe takes approximately 11 to 13 days of no caffeine to resensitize yourself to all of the benefits that you've probably felt when you first drank caffeine for the first time that you probably don't feel anymore if you're a regular user of it. That's enough time to resensitize yourself and actually feel it. So a little packet of MRE coffee or even two packets of MRE coffee, you can use those strategically before your events. You can really benefit from the performance enhancing qualities of caffeine, but don't worry about creatine. Next question. Would you go to ranger school if your number one goal is SF? Yes, I would. A lot of people think that having a ranger tab is really important for their potential success at selection. And on paper, it does not make any difference whatsoever. If you perform those 21 days, you'll get selected. If you perform to standard and you're the right person, you're going to get selected regardless of what you did before. Exhibit A. I'm an 18 x-ray. I didn't do anything before I went to selection other than basic training and airborne school and SOPSI. So obviously that didn't matter. I performed well at selection and I got selected and I am one of thousands and thousands of 18 x-rays who have made it. So doesn't matter for that. I say on paper because being ranger qualified can definitely help you in regards to like, you've been in a sucky situation before you've had to persevere when conditions were not favorable for feeling good and performing well, and you just kind of drive through it. That's basically the entirety of Ranger school. So you have that experience. You've, you've done that before you've kind of proven to yourself that you can get through difficult times. So that's good. Ranger school is also a leadership school. So the ability to lead groups of people is an important thing for team week. And the ability to display your interpersonal skills, your communication skills, your leadership skills is important in order to do well during team week to get good evaluations from your cadre. So that's another not on paper benefit of having gone to ranger school. So 
If you have an opportunity to go to ranger school and you haven't gone to selection yet, absolutely do it. You probably want to have a good amount of time in between ranger and selection, at least a few months. You don't need six months, eight months, a year, like a lot of people will say, but you probably want at least a few months so you can get recovered from ranger school and then start training up for selection. But if it doesn't happen and you have a sh opportunity to go to selection and you haven't gone to ranger school yet, you don't have to worry about it. You can go to ranger school later on when you are in SF. That's what I did. There's pros and cons to that, but I always recommend that anyone with an opportunity or an inkling or a gumption to go to ranger school should go to ranger school regardless of you know what their goals are. And to dovetail off that question, prep for ranger school versus F SFAS. Yeah. So for SFAS, you have to really perform from day zero to day 21. You have to be very, very fit and able to perform to standards and finish things in time. So you basically have to be way more fit for SFAS than Ranger School because Ranger School, the only time you're tested on your ability to do things fast, runs, rucks, pull-ups, push-ups, etc., is the very first week, like the first four days after the 12-mile ruck at Ranger School. Pretty much the rest of the time, everyone's on a similar playing field. Being more fit definitely helps, but at the same time, you're going to be underfed, undernourished, underslept, and just in a stressed out scenario the entire time. But when you're out on missions, which are the most important thing for ranger school for passing, when you're leading missions, etc., you don't have to like perform physically like the way that you do at SFAS. If you have solid training habits and you're in good endurance shape. You can do a 12 mile ruck well under three hours. You can do a five mile run well under 40 minutes. You can do the sufficient amounts of push-ups, pull-ups, etc. You don't even have to train for ranger school. I found out I was going to ranger school like five days before I actually went to ranger school and I was totally fine because my training habits were good and I was in shape for it. So depending on the person, like depending on how far away you are from those things, yeah, you want to get to where you can do what I just mentioned, but the overall physical performance requirements at Ranger School are nowhere near what they are at SFAS. For SFAS to do well, you have to be able to run fast. You have to be able to ruck fast. You have to be able to do push-ups, pull-ups, obstacle course, the CFA. You have to be able to crush your land nav and do it in a short period of time so you can actually finish before the cutoff time. And then you have to be able to suck your way through team week and also be a good team player and not be a dickhead and not let the stress get the best of you and all of your character flaws are rearing their ugly heads towards the end and you just get bad peer evals and bad cadre evals. So definitely training for SFAS needs to be much more meticulous and you have to definitely be a lot more physically capable in order to pass SFAS than Ranger School. Ranger School, eventually you're going to make it if you don't quit. Almost everybody makes it eventually. It takes some people a really long period of time. Some people do the extended stay where they stay for six months and they have to redo and redo. They keep recycling phases and that would suck. But at the same time, as long as you don't quit, you're probably going to make it. So yeah, those are the main differences. Next question, safety bar squat benefits. Got a free one and wondering if it's worth keeping in the garage gym. I absolutely think so. I love the safety bar. It's a little bit different than having a barbell because you're Hands are obviously on the handles, it goes over your shoulders and your hands are on the handles in front of you. So just that alone makes it so that it does not require anywhere near as much shoulder mobility to hold a barbell on your back. So if 
for whatever reason, you are doing squats with a barbell and your shoulders bother you. You can either work on your shoulder mobility and make it so they don't, or you can use a safety bar. And when I was doing a lot of low bar squatting, like I was talking about earlier, my shoulders would bother me sometimes after squats, just because it, that position that you hold the bar in and having a lot of load in your back, it just puts your shoulder in like it's very externally rotated position under weight. So if your shoulders are bothering you after a squat session, probably not the best idea to continue doing that. If you can't do your push day a day after squats because your shoulders hurt from squats, it's just not worth it. Unless you are a power lifter and you have to do squats, then I would definitely work and on your shoulder mobility and make sure that that's not the case anymore. But that's a great use for the safety bar right there. If barbell squats are uncomfortable for you or they bother you or you don't enjoy them or they don't serve you anymore, switch over to the safety bar and it's excellent. The safety bar is a slightly different recruitment pattern for like your core and it's a slightly different squat. It kind of keeps you more upright. So the safety bar can be great for people like I was talking about earlier with long femurs. It'll keep you more upright. It'll allow you to stay more upright. You do definitely have to practice bracing because it's a little bit different. You don't have your upper body like brace like you would with a barbell. So it just takes a little bit. It's a little bit of a learning curve and getting used to when you first switch to the safety bar, definitely expect to be a little bit weaker compared to your regular squat, but you can work up to where it is, you know, matching what your regular squat was before, especially if you feel better afterwards, or if it hits the quads better for you afterwards. Those are the two main benefits are of the safety bar. You typically can have just slightly better squat mechanics. You also don't have to worry about holding your bar on the back, holding the bar on your back and externally rotating those shoulders. So it is a great supplementary movement, or for some people, it's a great idea to just totally switch over to the safety bar. Additionally, some safety bars, the one I have in my garage has uh, detachable handles. So you can take the handles off and you can do JM presses with it. And that's a really good movement. Not all safety bars are created the same. Some of them don't have detachable handles, but it just kind of depends on which one you have. And lastly, I really like a safety bar for any sort of hands-free exercise that you want to do. So a split squat, or a reverse lunge where you don't want to have to balance yourself. You can use your hands to balance. Almost think of it like a belt squat or a hat field squat, except you're doing a single leg. So you're holding on to your power rack or you're holding on to handles while you're doing these movements and it's keeping you more stable and you're able to actually get more out of the movement for actual muscle growth and strength than trying to have to balance. There's pros and cons to doing both of these, but just a consideration. And then, yeah, you can do like Hatfield squats and stuff like that with the safety bar without having to worry about it coming off your leg, off your shoulders. And also you can do calf raises. For example, when I'm in my garage doing calf raises to actually load them instead of putting a barbell on my back and having my hands holding the barbell so it doesn't roll off. I put the safety bar on my back and I hold onto the rack so I'm balanced. And then I do calf raises that way. So very versatile tool and very good for a lot of people. A lot of people switch over to the safety bar and they never go back to the barbell for squats. And I'm one of those people. So definitely worth keeping in your garage for if any of those reasons kind of stick out to you as being good reasons. All right. Is lots of red meat bad for health and cholesterol? Thoughts on the carnivore diet. So I'll talk about the second one first, the carnivore diet. For most people, the carnivore diet is arbitrary meaning not necessary for health, like they could eat other things. And not only would they be just as healthy, they'd probably be more healthy because while red meat, which I'll talk about here in a second, is very good for you, it's not so good that it should be the only thing that you eat. So 
I am not a fan of the carnivore diet for most people. If you have autoimmune disorders and the only thing you can digest is meat, that's one thing, then absolutely do the carnivore diet. But for most people, it's not sustainable and it's very arbitrary and they'd be healthier if they ate other things and they'd just be more able to live a normal life than just eating meat and nothing else all the time. With that out of the way, red meat. So a lot of people say red meat is a massive culprit for heart disease and poor health, high cholesterol, etc. And it is if you consider all red meat to be the same. So for example, pepperonis, that's red meat, sausage, red meat, but also lean steak, lean beef, lean elk, bison, etc. That's all red meat too. And that type of red meat, the second things I mentioned is extremely good for you. It's very nutrient dense. The protein quality is super high and it's also very bioavailable. So bioavailability in regards to protein means you assimilate and actually put into use the majority of the protein. Whereas some sources of like plant-based protein are very non-bioavailable. So you need to eat more of it in order to assimilate enough of it. So if you're eating the right choices of red meat, so for example, 93.7 or better ground beef or lean ground elk, venison, bison, certain leaner cuts of steak. Those are all very good things to keep in your diet and to eat regularly. For example, I eat probably three quarters of a pound of red meat almost every single day, but I'm not eating three quarters of a pound of pepperoni and sausage. I'm eating actual quality red meat. So if you label red meat as all the same, then yeah, you probably want to avoid red meat. But if you go at it with some common sense and you're reasonable about it, you pick the right sources of red meat, you are doing your health a big service. If you avoid red meat altogether, you're probably doing your health a disservice. You are missing out on some extremely valuable and important micronutrients and also quality protein. And it's absolutely delicious. So I would definitely eat red meat. Just make sure you're choosing the right sources and you should be good to go. All right, we'll make this the last question. Concept of bulk and cut. How is it that muscle is maintained over a lifetime? Yeah, so typically it's pretty easy to, it's very simple to maintain muscle if you do the right things, if you don't do anything super extreme. Two examples of ways that you can go about this that would result most likely in muscle loss. If you do your bulk and your bulk is what we call a dreamer bulk and you're just eating everything under the sun, you're not really tracking your calories or you're intentionally eating like a thousand calorie surplus or something like that, and then you end up gaining tons and tons of fat along with your muscle, then you're going to have a much more difficult time when it comes time to cut only losing fat and not muscle. You'll have to cut for a very, very long period of time in order to avoid muscle loss or mitigate muscle loss. Whereas if you do a lean bulk and you're eating in a reasonable surplus, 200, 300, 400 calories surplus per day, and you gain mostly muscle and a little bit of body fat, it is way easier to cut that body fat without losing that muscle afterwards. You don't have to do it for six months straight like you would if you gained you know, 20% body fat on a bulk. You don't have to do it for as long and you'll be able to maintain that muscle. On the flip side, a great way to lose muscle while cutting is to do basically the opposite extremes where you're in a severe calorie deficit and or you're doing a lot of cardiovascular exercise or you're not eating enough protein or you are not lifting weights. So when you're bulking, to put this simply, when you're bulking and trying to intentionally gain muscle, you want to do it 
in a reasonable way where you're in a slight calorie surplus and you're not gaining too much fat. When it comes time to cut, you also want to do it in a reasonable way. 200, 300, 400, 500 calorie deficit, plenty of protein, minimum one gram of protein per pound of body weight, probably even more if you want to really make sure that you hold on to this muscle. You want to lift weights in a way that is going to promote muscle growth. Although you probably won't grow muscle when you're in a deficit, unless you're a noob and you don't have much lifting experience, then you get like beginner gains and you can gain muscle in a deficit. Or if you're on steroids, you want to lift in a way that is conducive to muscle growth because that is what's going to result in you maintaining that muscle. That and enough protein and not too much of a calorie deficit and not doing too much cardio or doing cardio with the intention of burning a bunch of calories. Worst case scenario, you lose a tiny bit of muscle that can be regained later on. But in most cases, you can just cut. If you do it reasonably, like I just said, you can cut and not lose any muscle mass. It just takes a little bit of meticulousness, but really it is pretty damn simple. It just, a lot of people do things because humans are naturally impatient. So they will go extreme when they cut, they'll go extreme when they bulk to try and expedite the process. And doing that ironically gives you the exact results that you don't want. You'll gain a ton of fat when you do extreme bulks and you'll lose a lot of the muscle when you go back into a cut and or you will lose a bunch of muscle when you do extreme cuts and your metabolic rate will slow down and your health will worsen and you'll feel crappy, you'll feel hungry all the time and you won't recover well, you won't get any pumps in the gym. It's just not a good combination. So. Being really reasonable with it is the best advice I have for that one, and you should be good to go. But that's it, guys. Thank you very much for listening today. I uh, got to quite a few questions. Looking forward to coming back with another episode soon. Hope everyone has an awesome week, and until next time, Terminator out. Thank you for listening. If you like this show and want to start crushing your goals, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And for more fitness content, follow me on Instagram at Terminator underscore training, or check out my website, terminatortraining.com. All right, guys, Terminator out.